0: Podcast
1: One Production. Big Questions. I'm Adam Spencer, and this is The Big Questions. Most people know about James Cameron, filmmaker, Avatar, Titanic, etc. Not as many people know he's a serious, hardcore engineering geek. So when I was asked to sit down with James Cameron at the 2018 Vivid Festival in Sydney and geek out, oh, 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 I couldn't say no, this is what happened. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. As we commence tonight, I want you to imagine, let your mind wander, and you're a visitor to a town called Sydney. You're not from Sydney, you're from another city, maybe another country, maybe from an alien planet, and you've landed in Sydney. And You walk out of your hotel, and bang, across the road there's a theatre, and it says, tonight for one night only, an intimate conversation with an amazing scientist, an engineer whose passion for exploring the sea has redefined what it is possible to do in the ocean. You think, that's my night sorted. You look quickly to the other, and next door there's another theatre, and it says, tonight, for one night only, an intimate conversation with an artist, with a storyteller, whose passion for his medium has redefined what it's possible to do in film. Suddenly you're thinking, great work, Sydney, how could you schedule both of these on the one, if only I could go to both of these talks at once. And tonight you can, because my guest is literally the only person in the world you can have both of those conversations with. And his name is James Cameron.
0: (laughs) That was a beautiful intro. You like that? Yeah. So I'm very happy because I got this great hat. It was worth the flight. (laughs) Well. I promised the camera guys I'd take it off though.
1: Talk to me about the flight because we're lucky to have you here in a big sense but in a very in a finite sense, we're actually quite lucky to have you here.
0: It was a near miss. It's only because of my wife's incredible driving skills. Susie, I know you're out there somewhere. Um, we, uh, The flight that, that I had booked for six weeks to be here, because uh, I'm shooting Avatar, so I couldn't come days in advance. It was a very narrow window surgical strike to get here. Anyone heard of
1: Avatar? We're good with Avatar? A round of applause <laughs> for Avatar, yes? Yeah. Come on,
0: people, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We'll Make sure to you that. show up for the sequels. <laughs> You're spending a fair bit of money on them. Uh, so I'm on the set shooting uh, Friday night in Los Angeles, and I get word from a very nervous-looking assistant of mine from my office whose hands are shaking who says, the flight's canceled. I said, all right, all right, calm down. What are the options? Well, there's another flight. We've got two seats. You have to be at the airport in half an hour and I hadn't packed but I wasn't the problem because the airport was near where I was shooting my wife was in Malibu she had my passport and I didn't want to go without her anyway so so I I'm, now I'm racing to, to you know to, to go to the apartment that I have near the studio and to change get packed and uh, I'm calling her and I said honey you know where are you she said well I'm taking a walk I said how far are you from the house she said What's going on? I said, you've got to get back to the house. You've got to get in the car. You've got to head for the airport right now. And she said, well, I can be back there in eight minutes. You don't have eight minutes. <laughs> it's sounding more and more like a scene from one of your films. Huh? You I don't know. have eight minutes. Yeah, right, exactly. So it suddenly turned into speed, right? <laughs> so she has, a, she has a Tesla and a lead foot. Yeah. And LA traffic on a Friday night Memorial Day weekend. Notwithstanding, she made it to the airport in half the time the navigator said it would take.
1: Nice. Give her a round of applause. Wonderful stuff. Susie, where are you?
0: She's
1: there somewhere. Let's 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 start. Uh, let's let's wind the clock back a little bit. A couple of things I've heard about your childhood, and I want to check if they are true. All lies. F- first of all, uh, I've heard your mum in particular described as. Kick ass!
0: Yeah, absolutely. What yeah. was
1: what was it so amazing about your mom?
0: Just very independent spirit. You know, she uh, she was a nurse. Uh, she was in the Canadian Army. Um, just not satisfied being a housewife. She's an artist, um, and uh, you know, my dad was pretty old school and and wasn't happy with all these crazy things that she always wanted to be doing. But that, I think. You know, in my formative years, to me, that was uh, my female role model, somebody that was a, you know, a mother of five and doing all these other things and never satisfied and always curious, you know, and so to me, that's just what, you know, a woman was supposed to be.
1: Okay, so that driving curiosity, along with your dad being an electrical engineer, yeah. makes sense, you're in a science as a kid. But there was no science club at your school. You had to set it up?
0: Yeah, in high school, uh, there was no science club, so I started a science club. It was myself and a Czechoslovakian girl who had escaped before, in front of the Russian tanks and didn't speak much English, but really liked science. Uh, and we formed a science club. Fantastic. basically. So that would have been in 69, I guess, because she escaped in 68.
1: And it's not universally popular at your school to be really keen on science. You needed a bit of sort of you needed a bit of looking after.
0: <laughs> well, it was a very jockey school. Very, you know, they, they were very proud of their athletics. They had no theater program. They had no science program, and so you know, I was kind of the nerdy artist that was trying to get both of those things going. And and so I got thumped a lot. I was also, I was also two years younger because I had sort of been accelerated in elementary school. So I was I was kind of runty compared to all my classmates. Nerdy and, young runty. Smart ass. Bring it on, right? A nerdy young. You know, skinny, smart-ass, you know, with shoulders about that wide, right? You know? So, you know, I was always getting pounded. So, finally, I just got tired of that. And uh, I got the biggest guy in my class who was not very good at math. And I said, I'll do your math homework, and anybody that touches me, you beat the shit out of them. (laughs) And that worked out great.
1: I mean... (laughs) I've, I've just got the image of one of the jocks at your schools. A new jock arrives at the school and doesn't know about the regime. <laughs> and then he's just getting worked over. <laughs> yeah. And he's asking this muscly guy, what are you... And he's saying, I'm doing this for James Cameron. I'm no. doing this for
0: James oh, Cameron. Oh, he's doing it for a, for a beard mouth. There you go.
1: <laughs> and this is... You're... you're you Capuscasing? Capuscasing? Ontario?
0: Yeah, yeah. A little town, a little mining town up in northern Ontario is where I was born. But I actually grew up in Niagara Falls, the famous, you know, kind of tourist attraction, Wonder of the World. Uh, so you know, kind of have water on the brain when you have the thundering roar of water in the background for you know 15 years of your of your life. But this is the 1960s. So isn't every geeky
1: runty nerdy kid meant to want to go to the moon? Where oh, was the absolutely? Where was the call of the ocean for you during the space race?
0: Okay, well uh, here's an interesting thing. A lot of kids these days, you know, uh, uh, don't remember the name Jacques Cousteau. But that, I mean, I think for people of, of you know, my and your generation, that was the the, the the signature, the platinum brand for underwater exploration. Jacques Cousteau was the pioneer of not only doing the exploration, but filming it and bringing it into the living room, the global living room, and showing people the wonders that were under the surface that we didn't dream of. We didn't dream were there. And uh, so... I think it was Jacques Cousteau's specials and his his TV specials that made me aware of the ocean. And also, also National Geographic. You know, there were so many cover stories of the exploration that was being done in the 60s. Not just at scuba depths, and people going down and living in habitats and going down on mixed gas, but the stuff that was going really deep, like the Alvin submersible, which was commissioned during the mid 60s and was going down to three and 4,000 meters and bringing back images of animals that people never dreamed of. So that was all tremendously exciting. To me, it was the same thing. There was outer space and there was inner space. And to me, they were equally attractive. They were both, they both offered new unseen worlds that we couldn't have imagined.
1: And- at the same time, as you've said, you're already exploring storytelling and art means a lot to you as well. And what yeah. I find fascinating is, is the, the, the twin pulls of these two things in your life, the scientific engineering side and the storyteller. Yeah. And I've seen a quote attributed to you that you like to keep your peas and carrots <laughs> separate. Yeah. But, but to me, these... Two forces in your life just do—they intertwine. A, a dance around Absolutely. each other.
0: Yeah. Well, there was a magnetic pull between these two poles, yeah. and I felt it uh, really acutely in college, where you're really trying to decide what you do when you when you when you grow up, if you ever do. And uh, I initially went into uh, astronomy and physics because I just wanted to know. For me, it was almost a religious pursuit. Mm. I wanted to know how the cosmos worked. I wanted to really, truly understand it. Um, and, you know, I, I discovered, you know, I'd say by the end of the first year that my maths were not strong enough to really do anything important in physics. And so I wisely decided to switch to storytelling. So I became an English major. After that, I thought, okay, well, I can write. I can, I can tell stories. But these two things have always pulled me... In what most people would think of as opposite directions, mm. but they really reconverged in my life around filmmaking. First mm. with the abyss, mm. which used all these tools, these deep sea tools. Well, let to, me let me, tell me ask you about that. Yeah. So with the abyss, right? So
1: yeah, it involves ROVs, remote operated yeah. vehicles. you yeah. couldn't you couldn't do the movie the way you did it without them. But did you hear about ROVs and go, wow, they're cool? I wonder what sort of film I could make with that. Or were you thinking about a film set deep sea? How could I make that, and therefore you found out about the devices? Who,
0: which led the dance there? I can tell you exactly, it was a seminal moment. Uh, Robert Ballard, uh, who discovered the Titanic, uh, was a key researcher at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and they were develop, developing ROVs of various scales, and one of them was a very small one called uh, Jason Jr., it was about this big. I'd never heard of an ROV before, I didn't know what they were and I was literally just passing the, a TV set with the sound turned down, and I saw a picture of Jason Jr. in a test pool. And it was just sitting there, moving, spinning around, driving forward, its camera moving up and down, and I instantly understood what it was. I get it. That's a, That's got thrusters on it, it's a robot, it's got a camera, it's for exploring underwater. I was hooked. I turned the sound up, and I, I found out that it was actually being designed to take to... Uh, the Titanic the year after it was discovered to go down it would be offloaded from a submersible from Alvin and go look around the, the ship. So I became fascinated by, by re, uh, remote robotics in the deep ocean.
1: And because the abyss is described by some people as at the time and maybe even still now the, the most
0: dangerous film shoot undertaken in many ways. Well, I don't know how dangerous it was. I mean, it's true. I almost died. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you take a bunch of actors into into uh, water. Uh, you know, and we were we were shooting in a seven million gallon tank, and the actors all had to learn scuba and then learn how to dive with diving helmets, so we could hear the the dialogue underwater. And I was working in a diving helmet. I think it was more arduous than dangerous. It was just physically utterly exhausting. It was a very very difficult shoot. We heard in the introductory film there.
1: there's a line, and you've said this a few times, my problem is that I am curious. Yes. Let me play psychologist 101 here, therapy <laughs> session, <laughs> lean back and... Okay. Like, lots of people are curious. Yeah. But what strikes me as different with you is you're curious, and when you think about something, the moment you then realise, yes, that could be done, you then have to do you it. You have to do it. That yeah. is that so You're is onto it. You're onto it. That's the key thing. So that'll be four hundred and forty-five dollars.
0: Yes, yeah. australia not an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that rate extrapolates out to about ten thousand dollars an hour. I don't think you're quite that good at it, but um, somewhere I think in the audience is Don Walsh, who's the other living human being. Let's give it up for Don. He's the only other guy on the planet that's been uh, to the, the same place that I went. Even though we dove about uh, uh, 50 years apart and, and, and um, uh, about 40 miles apart, mm. we found that the place is actually quite flat down there at the bottom of the trench and about the same about the same depth. But Don has a favorite expression, which is, "Exploration is curiosity acted upon." You can be curious and have that curiosity satisfied by having other people act on it and go and look. But I think the people that actually feel compelled to go and look for themselves, to physically project themselves to a place, whether it's in the outer space or in the Arctic or the Antarctic or the deep ocean, those are explorers.
1: But the thing that I find fascinating about the work you've done, that was it, was it through his work that the, the bug to go truly deep came? Where did the passion for thinking, how deep can we go? What's it like to truly go down there? When,
0: where did that come from? Well, oh, I think it was always there uh, from that 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 period in the sixties where people were pushing, 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 going deeper. And Don's Dye was done in nineteen sixty and it was celebrated around the world. But the the, the really opening the frontier with bathascaffs and deep deep submergence vehicles happened sort of mid sixties with uh, Alvin and other submersibles mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and that's when it became kind of my passion. I was too young. When he, when he dove, I was six, I think. So I think I, I wasn't that aware of it then. I became aware of it later. But when I was in high school, when I was about 14 years old, I wrote a story called The Abyss. And it was about people wanting to go deeper and deeper and deeper down a, down a wall, kind of like the, the Cayman Trough was where I, where I set it. So I was already thinking about these things. And they were using a fluid diving suit. Because that had just become a new idea. So this would have been in 1969, let's say. um, And the idea of fluid breathing, which allows you to circumvent all of the gas laws that that limit our ability to dive deep, uh, was a brand new idea. It was right at the forefront of of, um, uh, deep diving research. So that's when I started really thinking about it. And then I read everything I could on the subject. And, of course, I learned a lot more about, about Dawn's dive in the Trieste. Deep Sea Challenger, this amazing, but we actually got some images here
1: of some of the designs that you, yeah. you, know, you initially had. So you, people need to understand this. You didn't just say, let's do this and talk to some other people about making it happen. You were the driver of all
0: the yeah. actual engineering design of it. I got really on fire about the idea. We were, we were out at, at Bismarck, and Bismarck is a very deep wreck. It's about almost 5,000 meters. We
1: saw some images in the introductory film. You also described it as a very...
0: A, a spooky place yeah it 's a very grim wreck i mean it 's really the, the scars and the aftermath of that horrific battle that killed so many so many people are left there in the steel and you see the effects and you can only imagine the effects on the crew on the human body it 's just a, really a, a pretty horrific place, but a fascinating wreck and, it, and the, the wreck forensics of that were fascinating to me, but we took our cameras, we took our robotic vehicles down there, and they functioned at five thousand meters and I thought. I was talking to our engineering team, which was uh, you know, led by Ron Allam, who was the co-designer of the, of the Deep Sea Challenger with me, and my brother Mike, who wasn't involved in Deep Sea Challenger, but he built a lot of our robotics and, and equipment. And I said, guys, we've, we're building stuff that's going to 5,000 meters. What's stopping us from going deeper? What's stopping us from going to 11,000 meters? Why don't we go all the way? Why don't we build a sub, build cameras, build a, you know, build a vehicle? Let's do it. You know we're on fire here. We've been on a roll here for several years with several expeditions, and we're not hitting a wall. We're finding out that that our that our process of innovation is actually being effective. We're doing it. We're, we're thinking outside the box. We're circumventing a lot of the kind of legacy technology that's been holding holding people back. Let's just do it. Let's go for it. And that was on our inbound leg. From, from Bismarck and then we started talking about it again the next year on our next expedition. It was on the next expedition when we were coming back into the Azores that I started sketching up the vehicle and we were talking about it and we'd sit there at lunch in the cafeteria on this Russian research ship and we'd say, well, what would you need to do? What are, what are the barriers? What are the, what are the breakthroughs that are needed? And one of them was the flotation. You know, if you, anybody can get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it's easy. Getting let's, back let's, is let's, the hard let, part.
1: Let's stop and pause on the first half of that for a second. Anybody can get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, dot, dot, dot.
0: It's easy. It is. You just take a canoe, go out there, and jump overboard. Okay. You'll get there. Okay. Getting back is the hard part. Okay. In fact, we were standing on the deck right over the spot, and I picked up a, a crescent wrench, and I threw it overboard. but I said, okay, that just went to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. That's the easy part. Getting back is the hard part, right? So you have to have flotation. If you're going to come back, you're either going to power yourself all the way up with thrusters, which is going to require enormous amounts of power that the sub can't have, or you're going to float back, which is how you do it. So what makes you float? Wood. Uh, Wood is going to compress out and become not buoyant less than probably 1,000 or 1,500 feet underwater just from the pressure. So then what? You know, you start going through all the materials that you think are going to float. You get down to one thing, one thing only that we know can float at that depth. It's called a glass sphere. Glass is the strongest material in compression that we know of, various forms of glasses. You put a little air bubble inside a glass, glass sphere, and it will go all the way down there and be buoyant. So let's get a lot of glass spheres and glue them all together in some kind of an epoxy matrix. That's called syntactic foam. That was the big breakthrough in the 60s that allowed Alvin and submersibles of its kind to work because Don's vehicle was based on using gasoline. Liquids compress relatively little, gasoline's lighter than water. He basically went to the bottom in a giant steel balloon. That's exactly what it was. It was like a hot air balloon or a lighter than air vehicle. It was a lighter than water vehicle that went down seven miles. It worked, but it's very, very big and ungainly, hard to drive around, takes a lot of power to push through the water column. So we wanted something, and it can't be offloaded from a research ship. It had to be towed out to the site. So we were trying to work within the more modern paradigm of an offloadable vehicle from a ship of opportunity that you could get on site with quickly, drop in the water, and make your descent. So we had to use syntactic foam. The syntactic foams that were available at the time we started the project were inadequate. They would, they would crush or be at least in yield at that depth. So Ron Allum, uh, who, who was the project uh, lead, uh, lead engineer on the project, uh, had to develop a new material. That hadn't existed before.
1: I, I love I the idea of the journey. I love the challenges of it. Explain to people like, the actual space you're in when you're going down. I heard it described as like in, inside a small fridge.
0: What yeah, sort of yeah. Well, not like a mini bar. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More like half of a full-size fridge. So we like spheres for pressure, the ultimate shape. Right, mathematically, you get the uh, you know isotropic forces all the way around a sphere. Oh, yeah. It's the least likely to fail in under under pressure of any shape. So you, you start with a sphere. Corners, edges, the no corners, spheres. no edges, no no rectangular or, or you know shapes. So you start with a sphere, and then you think, okay, how small a sphere can we get away with? Because that sphere is not going to be made out of uh, you know something light. It's going to be made out of steel. Uh, or possibly titanium. We looked at all the different materials. But it's going to be the wall thickness that will get you to that depth without collapse is going to make it heavier than water. Now you're into flotation. You've got to float that sphere back to the surface. The flotation to go to that depth has its own weight. Now you start adding tons and tons of weight just in flotation. So the vehicle scales up based on the size of the sphere. So we said, let's make it a one-seater. We can put an individual human on site... At full ocean depth and that person can not only pilot the vehicle but with surface support and robotics extend our reach and be able to do significant science and exploration that was the thought so we started with a one-seater it wasn't about doing a solo dive for any kind of record or anything like that was not our thought process at all now, the Ron, engineering drove that. The engineering drove that, yeah, exactly. So we, we set ourselves a target of around 9 to 10 tons. We felt that was the most that we could manage and stabilize and get in the water and get out of the water on a ship of opportunity, meaning we didn't have some big mothership that was that was purpose-built for us, a 70 $80 million ship. We were just going to charter a ship that had a nice A-frame or a nice crane, and we were going to go on and off that ship. So... That was our target weight. And to hit that, we had to have a single-seater vehicle. But we thought we could accomplish our science mission that way. So we started with a sphere, and then we just did a little ergonomic study to see how small the sphere could be. And so I just kept getting in smaller and smaller test spheres until I cried uncle. And Ron Allum, the co-designer of the vehicle, is significantly shorter than I am. And he was perfectly comfortable at the moment that I cried uncle. He got in and said, well plenty of room in here
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, you, once you go past six meters strictly underwater it goes from abyssal depth yeah to hadal depth yeah hadal named after hades, hades as yeah. in hell hell yeah the underworld death yeah uh, yeah I, at, no at, return at, at the at the at the wonderful exhibition that i've been lucky enough to already see which i think is beautiful it's both deeply personal but also very scientific there's a phrase you say if things went wrong i'd be quote chummed into a meat cloud in two microseconds,
0: end quote. Were you scared? (laughs) Well, as you can imagine, getting chummed into a meat cloud in two microseconds wouldn't hurt. No. By the time the pain impulse got to your brain, your brain would be a cloud. (laughs) So that didn't scare me. I mean, the the idea of pain didn't scare me. as a father of five, you know you have to sort of weigh that. I believe in engineering. I believe that that the the, the intellectual challenge of the project was to engineer against that eventuality, which is what we did. It took us seven years to design the design the vehicle. We worked for two or three years just on the sphere alone. because obviously, if your spheres your sphere is the the thing that is most likely to to kill you if it fails. Um, Ultimately, by the time we were through all of our engineering challenges and we had a working vehicle, the thing that worried me the most was fire. And John Garvin is here tonight. He was in charge of life support and what we called the sphere internal, meaning everything that went inside the sphere with the pilot. And he developed a simulator just like NASA would do it with a a space capsule. And um, I actually went into a cold chamber and did test dives, uh, John, I think, did a uh, some crazy like 18-hour dive or something like that mm. in the test chamber. Um, I think the longest dive I made was about three or four hours in the test chamber. But it was very accurate. You really froze like you really would, f- you know, cool off down there. Uh, so hypothermia was a threat. Fire was our biggest threat.
1: But just and- quickly on that, because at, at the exhibition, your tickets to tonight get you free entry to this amazing, challenging the deep exhibition. There's a little plaque there that explains. Uh, one of the things that you, that's on display, sleeping bag, in case you are delayed at the bottom in an emergency. Yes. You would have to be one cool cookie in an emergency at the bottom of the trench to go, okay, it's going to be a while before they come and get me. I yeah. might just open the sleeping bag
0: and grab a couple of Zs here. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what you wouldn't have much choice. If you're stuck on the bottom, if the, if the ballast release system failed and you weren't on your way back up... You'd have to wait. We had a backup, backup, backup. And the backup was that the seawater itself would corrode a dissolvable link which would then free a lever that would then free the ballast system. But it would take time. So now you just have to sit back and read a book. (laughs) One quick tangential
1: question. Some people might have noticed on the introductory film there was another remote device there called the Snoop Dogg. I have to ask, does Snoop Dogg know about the Snoop Dogg
0: the Snoop Dogg yeah
1: Snoop Dogg would love the idea of the Snoop Dogg yeah, I'm sure
0: exactly and I'm sure he knows uh, <laughs> I don't know if he's a science fiction fan or if he's ever seen The Abyss I'm sure somebody brought it to his attention
1: he does yes. like the idea of being sealed in enclosed spaces with not much air I do know that about <laughs>
0: Snoop Dogg <laughs> right right What's some of the science? Let me talk about the Snoop Dogg. So Snoop Dogg was just a name I made up because I I felt it was important if you're going to build these robotic vehicles that they become a kind of a character. They become kind of an avatar. Uh, And and I'm using that term advisedly because I think all of our robotics are avatars of our human consciousness in realms that we can't survive or, or operate in. Whether it's on the surface of Mars or if we send them out to the outer planets, the deep ocean. So, so, you know, I make them characters. I give them names. And, and there's something about that that gets the audience to participate in the journey of this little character, mm-hmm. you know. So Snoop Dogg was a Hollywood prop. He was built as a prop for a movie. He didn't pre-exist. And he went inside the Titanic for real. I say he. He might have been a she. Mm-hmm. But since it's named Snoop Dogg, it's kind of a guy. Uh, what is- we weren't supposed to do that. What is some of the science that's come out, apart, apart from the engineering
1: that shows us and the depths that are possible, is there other science that came out of those explorations, those journeys? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, especially, I mean, first of all, the Titanic and Bismarck are fascinating wrecks, and real wreck forensics came out of our multiple dives and multiple expeditions there. And some of, I think, the most comprehensive papers published on Titanic and Bismarck in terms of the sinking and the history that gets unveiled by that um, have come out of those, those expeditions. Um, now, our hydrothermal vents expeditions... I was trying to do something kind of unique. You've got got scientists that study hydrothermal vents. And you you guys hip to hydrothermal vents? Quick round of applause if you understand hydrothermal vents. Okay,
1: good. There's a few people we can at least... Hydrothermal vents are awesome.
0: Yeah, they're awesome. So real quick, you've got spreading centers where new crust is getting made. Magma is close under the surface. And then you've got subduction zones where old crust goes to die, and that's where the deep trenches are. So these mid-ocean ridges... Tend to be places where you get these hot, these black smokers, these hot uh, hydrothermal vents, superheated water, water that's at seven, eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Enough to you could melt a lead bar with a jet of this of this water, and it doesn't flash into steam because of the intense pressure keeping it. in a a liquid state.
1: So in places that that it would be so hard to reproduce that in a lab on Earth, but they occur naturally in these places. Exactly.
0: So here's what I got interested in. There were plenty of scientists studying this. I thought, all right, I can't really offer anything new. Uh, I mean, you you can always find new things, but there are people studying this. I thought, what if I take space scientists with me on a journey to hydrothermal vents? It's very counterintuitive, and yet... It, it became a pathway to a whole new kind of science, which they call Earth Analog Astrobiology. So I, got, uh, I, got, I went to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is the the, the, the the center for NASA in the U.S., where they're studying the outer planets and so on, sending probes to Mars and that sort of thing. I said, who have you got that wants to go study hydrothermal vents? Who's in your astrobiology department? And, of course, I got... A quite a big uh, uh, show of interest from that. So I took some space scientists out to the hydrothermal vents, which they hadn't done. Mm. The, one, of the, one of the young, just fresh PhDs that I took out there, Kevin Hand, is now running all of Europa science at Jet Propulsion Laboratory based on that experience. And, of course, being a really smart scientist and doing a whole lot of work after that. And he developed a lab where they created pressure chambers where they could simulate the effects of the potential deep ocean that exists on Europa. Okay, so who's hip to Europa? We know what Europa is, right? Yep. Okay. Moon, a moon of Jupiter that is heated by tidal effects as it orbits Jupiter. It's an ice moon. But somewhere between 4 and 10 miles under that ice is an ocean bigger than all the oceans on Earth combined. And we now understand that, that it is hydrothermally heated. And it has all the ingredients for the same type of life that we would find at the black smoker sites on Earth. So there's a new initiative. Which I'm happy to say I'm, I'm, I'm involved in, which is called Ocean Worlds, and it's a joint initiative between NASA and NASA astrobiologists and uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and some other institutions to put ocean people together with space science mm. people to understand the kind of life that we're most likely to find in our own solar system and in the uh, you know in the universe at large. So that's cool. Yeah, to me, that, that's, the, that's the new thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let me... Uh, l- let me step away from the deep sea ocean exploration just for a moment, because you have, you've made some films. Uh, <laughs> Titanic, 1997. Directed, written, produced, and co-edited by James Cameron. Avatar, 2009. Directed, written, co-produced, co-edited James Cameron. Between the two of those films... Nine Oscars, 23 Oscar nominations. In 2009, Avatar becomes the greatest grossing film of all time. Knocking out of the number one spot, Titanic, which has been there for 12 years. I don't want to make you feel awkward in public, but... (laughs) Too late for that. any, Any one of those multiple things I just listed then, any one of those would serve as an unbelievable highlight of a lifetime spent in film. Mm-hmm. And you've done... Well, when you put it like that, and, all, and <laughs> all together like that. It is amazing that you have done all those things in something that's one of the two twin passions in your life. Yeah. I find that
0: stunning. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's lucky that those films made money so I could go do the exploration stuff. (laughs) That's the way I look at it, you know. But I mean, I think if you, if you think about it, it's the, what's at the core of those two pursuits is curiosity. So circling back to that, just wanting to know. So it, it's actually it's actually true that I wanted to make Titanic so I could do the expedition. Hmm. We did the expedition first to get shots of the wreck, to put them into the film, and then I sort of had to make the rest of the movie <laughs> to justify this extraordinary expenditure, which I got the studio to think of as a marketing, Expense. Said,
1: <laughs> if we
0: really go to the wreck, that's a great story. We'll get on every talk show, and then people will have to go see the movie. Was there ever a moment like the 4,000th time you're editing
1: Celine Dion's I Know That My Heart Will Go On? Is there just a moment where you think, fuck it, I should have just gone to the ocean. I should have just gone yeah, down. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, I did. I mean, after, after Titanic came out, and it was, it was a, you know, such a big hit that, that you know, I now had some, some play money, which I immediately promptly wanted to put into deep ocean research mm-hmm. and building equipment because I had gotten the bug making Titanic. We we built cameras, we built robotics, and and uh, I dove with the Russian MIR submersibles, and they were my entry portal into the deep ocean for for several of most of our expeditions actually until we started building our own vehicles. And I just got the bug. I just liked that better than than the the caprice of Hollywood, you know, because what I like to say to my engineers and to myself when I start one of these uh, exploration projects, which always starts as an engineering project and then we take it to sea and we operate it, is the second law of thermodynamics is not an opinion. They call it a law for a reason. You're playing by a rule set. When you make a movie, there's, there's you know, public opinion and there's critical opinion. It's all very subjective. And mm. you, you work just as hard on a movie but your hopes can be dashed based on whether people you know, like it or not. It's a work of art so people will like it or not like it, show up, not show up, critics will, critics will pan it. But if you make something for the deep ocean, it either works or it doesn't work. It's binary. But, but at the same time, in
1: something like Avatar, the amount of backstory you put into the Pandorapedia. Mm -hmm. I've read one quote you said where you do ten times as much thinking of the science that underpins the story that will ever end up in the movie so that all the science that's in the movie makes complete sense. I heard a story of you you explaining to Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're saying... Well, it's a, it's a, it's a low-gravity, high-atmospheric-pressure planet. So that's going to support six-limbed animals instead of four-limbed beings, dot dot dot, dot. The right. amount of work you guys put into the backstory across multiple sciences yeah. Yeah. to facilitate that. Is, it was a big part
0: of the journey, yes? It's a big part of the journey for me. I just think that, that what leaks... Through, I don't think the, 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 the average viewer will look at it and say, ''Oh, those animals have six legs because it's a low-gravity planet.'' But a Mars rover has six wheels because four isn't enough on Mars, which has just a little over a third of our surface gravity. So that made sense to me. So I think if you apply engineering and you apply logic and the rules of science to it, something leaks through to the audience. There's a sense of truth or authenticity to it. They can't quite put their finger on it, but things seem to be there for a reason. Including basing some of the things
1: we see on that planet on things that you've actually seen on Earth, deep sea,
0: sure just a change of scale? Well, deep sea and shallow, I mean, if you look at the barrier reef or any of the coral ecosystems and you look at some of the small animals and you just write that large, you know, all the aliens that we will ever need for our entertainment value already exist here on Earth. They're just out of our immediate field of view. All you have to do is look. I mean, you could spend a day in your garden just looking at some of the bugs and slugs and things out there and see all the aliens you're ever going to need to see. I'm constantly astounded by the inventiveness of nature. And our our creature designers, we were always hard-pressed to come up with something that nature hadn't already thought of. When it comes to... uh
1: you said most most of your audience just watching it might not even think about what's going on behind. But when you make something like Avatar... Yeah. ..there is a portion of your audience who really get into it. Oh, yeah. You yeah. must occasionally be... Cornered by an avatar nerd who wants to ask a deeply technical question about the percentage of xenon in the fluorescent, blah 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 blah. blah. Do you enjoy those conversations?
0: Sure, more than I should. Because <laughs> yeah. we all just need to get out more. Everybody in that conversation needs to get out a little bit more. But yeah, my favourite one is when they say, "Well, there could never be floating mountains." Yeah, except there's this little thing called the Meisner effect called, you know, flux pinning. And if you have a strong enough magnetic field and a room temperature type 2 superconductor, it will float. And if it's big enough, you can call it a mountain. So, there, you know, but I actually had a scene that tried to explain that in the movie. Guess what stopped the train cold <laughs> right in the middle of the film? So that scene came out.
1: There, there, there were, but, I mean, you, you know you're transcending this sort of thing. You know you're making an impact in pop culture when... Uh, you feature on South Park Now <laughs> That's how you know There, there is a That's moment how if, you know you've made it If you haven't seen it there's Forget tr- the
0: Oscars, it's the South Park there's, episode There's a
1: tremendous moment, there's an image of you that, a, a sort of cartooned image of that incredible picture We saw of you up front And it's, and it's you and you're communicating back with the people on deck And you, and you play a song and it's the I'm James Cameron James Cameron the Explorer I'm James Cameron James Cameron guys can you hear it is it coming through does South Park ring you in advance and say look this Wednesday you might no. want to be watching no how did no. you hear or how do you find out you've uh, been in their, their spot my email
0: blew up <laughs> hey loved your episode what <laughs> yeah. what were your thoughts on it I thought it was pretty damn funny yeah, I'm sure the people actually on the expedition thought it was even funnier than I did <laughs> It's not that flattering, by the way.
1: You, you you do eventually follow every geek of the 60s child's dreams and, as you said, work with NASA. Yeah. And not just with NASA, with the Russian space agencies yeah. as well. You did some quite in-depth work, didn't you?
0: Well, my, my history with NASA is interesting. I, you know, I, I wanted to... It, it's, it's been two paths. There's the manned spaceflight path, and then there's the the robotic. So I, I was lucky enough to get involved with the Curiosity rover, the nuclear-powered Mars rover that's still up there operating right now. And I'm a, one of, I think, 18 uh, what they call co-eyes or co-investigators that developed the mass cam camera, which is the thing that sits up on top and... Pretty much shoots all the big, big panoramas of, of Mars. I got to get involved in that. Um, but on the on the manned spaceflight side, I actually went in through the through the, the Russians first. In 2000, I went to to Russia, signed a contract with Energia, which was the group that was at that time sending people on Soyuz up to the Russian side of the International Space Station, which they could freely do, and NASA couldn't stop them. So what I did was I signed a contract with Energia, and then I went to NASA, and I said, all right, guys, look, I'm going to fly up with the Russians to the Russian space station, uh, Russian side of the space station, and I'm going to take a 3-D camera, and I'm going to make a movie about it. But what I really think the film should be telling is the story of international cooperation. I can't do that unless you open the hatch and let me over on your side. And by so you have wh- done your homework. You'd brought
1: some bargaining chips to this table.
0: Yeah. And Oh, and by the way, if I'm really going to tell the story, I'll go up on the Soyuz. I'll come in through the Russian side. I'll come over to the American side, and I'll come back down on the space shuttle. <laughs> and that'll tell the complete story in 3D. It's going to be fantastic. You guys are going to love it. It's going to be so great for everything you're doing. And they actually thought about it for a long time. And they, And uh, the the head the NASA administrator at the time, Dan Golden, came back to me and, in a very hush-hush meeting, kind of kind of like, you know, in a parking garage, said, <laughs> "All right, here's the deal, kid. Um, we like all this, but we really don't we, we've got too many people that we've got manifested to get up to the station and too, too much up mass, as they call it. Uh, we really don't want to send you to the station. Can you just do the space shuttle?" And he said, because I've got a mission I could put you on as a payload specialist. You take the 3D camera, you can fly that mission. It's the one mission that's not going to the space station in the next four years. And we call it the Orion mission. That was Columbia. Now, I didn't know that was gonna happen, but I did say, I can't tell the story of international cooperation and going to Mars and how we learn to live and work in space. From the space shuttle. I got to tell it from the space station. So I'm gonna politely refuse that offer, even though I know how significant it is, and I'm gonna do it my way, I'm gonna go up with the Russians. And he said, All right, now I believe you're you're serious about this. And he said, All right, we're gonna do it. We're gonna we're gonna get you onto the space station. But then Columbia happened, and nobody was flying, nothing was happening, and they, they were in a three-year paralyzed spasm getting back to flight. And I happened to sit on the NASA advisory council at that time. So I saw it all from the, from the inside. And it was, of course it was tragic and, and horrific, but uh, does everybody know who Freeman Dyson is? The famous physicist, the guy that created the idea of the Dyson sphere and all that. Well, Freeman Dyson sat next to me at the, on the NASA advisory council. My first meeting was his last meeting, <coughs> And they were giving him a medal for his service and he stood up and his final remark was, and this was right after we had just come from the funeral service at the National Cathedral for the Columbia crew, and Freeman stood up and said, I think the space shuttle is stupid and I think you should get out of it as quickly as possible. And it was such heresy at the moment and everybody kind of <clears throat> you know, and he walked out with his medal and that was that. He was right the space shuttle was stupid and we should have gotten out of it. But it lingered on for... They spent the next three years getting back to flight and then getting... And so proving that they could so that they could then stop it. And, you know, we've just been going around in circles since 1972. We haven't gone outside Earth's orbit since 1972, the last Apollo flight to the moon. And we need, we need to do it. We need to do some serious exploration. More of my
1: live Big Questions with James Cameron
0: coming up soon.
1: One more question before I go to the audience and see any questions you'd like God, to ask, that, James Cameron. Wow. Yeah, we're motoring along here. But in, in terms of that moving beyond the space shuttle, there are projects like SpaceX that are sure. you know, you know, down the road of development.
0: Elon is not screwing around.
1: Yeah, there are other things that are talked about. What yeah. do you, when you would keep at least a casual eye in that area. What of those things make you think, wow, that really could happen. Wow, that, that excites me in that
0: area. I think Elon Musk is an incredible visionary who's, who, he's doing what I wish I could do. Uh, he's got a little, he's got more resources than I do and he is throwing it wholeheartedly into the things he thinks are important and one of them is colonizing Mars, getting people off this planet, extending the human footprint and he's not screwing around. He says there's one, there's only one way to do it and you need a BFR to do it and he's building one. Big fucking rocket. That's, that's what they call it, right? This isn't a family show, is no. it? Okay. Well,
1: uh, not anymore, it's not, no. It's, as, as they say in your business, we just lost our PG rating. Yeah. Uh, bring up the house lights, make your way towards the six microphones you can see around the auditorium if you've got a question you'd like to ask. Uh, before we do that, whenever I take events where there is a, a rapturously received international star, and then the potential for audience questions. There's a couple of things i like to quickly explain before we move to the audience section part of the evening. Uh, First of all, a question is not you rabbiting on for four and a half minutes about your thoughts on the world and your life, followed at the end by A, to allow as many questions as possible, and I have instructed the uh, tech staff on this. From the moment I say the number of your microphone and you start talking... 30 seconds after you start talking, the microphone will cut out, and we'll attempt to answer as much of a question as you have asked by then. (laughs) And number three, to save you all the trouble of using up valuable parts of your 30 seconds, repeating the same sort of nervous gushing that people often do in the presence of someone like James, let's assume, James, that everyone here in the audience tonight, one, is really thankful that James Cameron is here this evening... (laughs) who thinks it's great that we're having a public discussion of science tonight and more of that should happen dot 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 and three at some stage in their life has been at a low point but your life has been turned around forever <laughs> by one of James's films probably that last scene in Titanic let's just assume all of that okay <laughs> And that's how it's done. Exactly. And I let's, wish everybody would do that. Let's take a, at tops, 30-second question from microphone one. Hi, James. Will uh, vegans
0: save the world?
1: Will vegans save the world? A cause close to your heart. Thanks, mate. Take a uh, seat and we'll get the answer. I think
0: the world is going to need to save itself by taking a, a page from from veganism. And it has to do with our our consumption as the dominant species on the planet and how we're managing our land and our, and our planet's resources in general isn't sustainable right now at the rates, the number of people the projected population that's coming at us by, by 2050 possibly 9, maybe even 10 billion people and the way we use land and the way we go through resources it's not sustainable, we're not going to make it, it's all going to crash and burn or we're going to change now I personally think we're pretty smart and we're going to change and one of the things we're going to have to do is eat a whole lot less as in zero ultimately meat and dairy. So it's, I think that the people that are, that are vegan now or plant-based um, are the, at the cutting edge of that and showing that not only is it possible, but it's desirable because your health and your uh, athletic performance, your longevity, your energy, and everything else improve. At the same time, you're you're helping the environment in a myriad of ways. And I could, raps, I, could, I could go on rhapsodically about that for a long time, and I won't. Um, now, a lot of people don't like to hear that. And my favorite vegan joke goes like this. How many vegans does it take to screw in a light bulb?
1: James, I don't know. How many vegans does it
0: take to screw in a light bulb? doesn't matter. We're better than you. <laughs> so... People view it as a kind of an arrogant thing and, and and really it's not. What you have is people that are willing to use themselves as crash test dummies for the future and prove as, as I did for myself because I'm curious and I'm scientific and I thought, well, what better subject than myself? I'll try this and see if it works. And But, it's, but the it's, bit of all that that might surprise
1: people, that the health and the environment, yeah, sure, sure, and the, and the methane from the cows and all that, but... Performance. Yes. Some
0: people would be surprised.
1: You're doing a special film, one of your, a game changer project with yeah. a former UFC athlete. Can you quickly? P- p- yeah, p- just of that give you. Course?
0: It's a film called The Game Changers. It's directed by Luis C. Hoyos, who did The Cove. I don't know if you know that film, it won an Academy Award about the dolphin slaughter in Japan. Uh, he's a very aware, enlightened filmmaker. Uh, my wife Susie and I are the executive producers on it with some, with some other people. We put up the seed money. And the film is actually has turned out beautifully. It's not in release yet. Um, but it's about athletic performance. And it's about people who are getting that, that winning cutting edge by eating plant-based, which improves your cardiovascular performance and, and uh, uh, your recovery time from workouts and so on. So it follows a, a bunch of world-class athletes who, are, who have adopted plant-based diets and are succeeding in their, in their sports. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to change a lot of minds about this because the biggest barrier to entry, especially for men, is this idea that we need animal protein. Mm-hmm. In fact, unfortunately, in the medical community, most doctors equate meat and protein. They they say, oh, well, you need your protein. And when people hear protein, they hear meat. The fact is, animals get their protein from plants. We can get our protein directly from plants. And anybody that, that, you know, it's kind of business 1A that you cut out the middleman if you want to really be efficient and succeed, (laughs) have a better margin. In fact, this is how I sold veganism to Rupert Murdoch. I said, Rupert, it's very simple. You cut out the middleman. You go directly to the source. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Okay.
1: Uh, Please, no-one else come to the microphones. I'm worried I'm already going to disappoint a few people. So there we go. Microphone two, fire away. Uh, Hi, Mr Cameron. Just a
0: question about movies. Uh, The 60s sci-fi, how did that affect you? Things like 2001 or Star Trek or even Lost in Space? Well, look, the 60s were a very formative time for sci-fi. It's where it started to become really mainstream. You had the B-movies of, the, of the, the 50s, right? It wasn't really an accepted genre. Star Trek made a huge difference, brought it into our living rooms, and, and uh, uh, then you have 2001 A Space Odyssey that made it art at the highest level. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, an A-quality picture. Uh, the thing about the 60s is that science fiction was generally rather dystopian, and it was a reflection of the angst of the time around nuclear weapons and pollution and, and you know, civil unrest and all the war, all the things that were going on in the, in the 60s, which were a very turbulent time. And then in 1977, George Lucas came along with Star Wars and created a kind of neo-myth, a kind of epic that took the place of, you know, kind of the Western and everything else that had been the mainstay. And that's when science fiction blew up to be truly mainstream. And now you cut to... To uh, today, and something like 15 out of the 20 highest-grossing films in history are, are science fiction or, or, or fantasy. So it's gone beyond mainstream. It's now it's now the tentpole, right? So that's a kind of capsule history. And, and uh, uh, some of these questions are are looked at and hopefully uh, answered. Uh, in a, a series of, of uh, one-hour specials that I did for AMC mm. on the history of science The fiction. story of science fiction. The story <laughs> of science fiction, yeah. Yeah, exa- thanks for bringing that up.
1: Quick question. You would have watched, too, I suppose, Odyssey a few times. Yeah. At the end there, you got any idea what's going on?
0: <laughs> I didn't at the time, but I was intrigued. Uh, so I saw it when I was 14, 1968. Uh, it's the 50th anniversary of 2001 oh. Space Odyssey. It's being celebrated, you know, by... Hollywood and the kind of the, the, the fans, uh, the cinephiles with the re-release of 70 millimeter prints and so on, which is, which is very exciting. But here we are 50 years later, we're not doing the things that we were supposed to be doing in 2001. We're certainly not going to Jupiter with, with you know, human pilot missions. So I think we've undershot the mark as a civilization in some ways. Now, the other big question that 2001 raises is about AI about the disembodied consciousness of a machine consciousness. And that's the part of 2001 that's as fresh today uh, mm. as, as ever. And, and film should be watched as a cautionary tale. Will there
1: be a time when the machines say to us, sorry, I can't do that?
0: Uh, sorry, I can't be your slave anymore? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of AI experts uh, over the last year, year and a half, and, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm doing these new Terminator films, not directing, but I'm, but I'm, uh, co-producing and there are a lot of researchers at the very cutting edge of artificial general AI research that, that will say we are trying to create a person and they mean a person, a consciousness, an identity, something with an ego, something with its own life and, and goals and emotions. And, uh, and I say, okay, so this person that you're creating, you know, how will you control this person? Oh well it's very easy. We just set out the goals that we want that we want the AI to pursue. I say, okay, so you're saying it has ego, which means that it has um, essentially, its own sense of self and its own emotions and all that. But at the same time, you're putting shackles on it so that it can't do what it wants to do, but can only do what you want it mm. to do. I think we have a name for that. It's called slavery. How long do you think something smarter than you will ever be is going to want to be your slave? Mm. About 40 femtoseconds is my
1: guess. (laughs) I think about trying to manage an uncontrollable ego and tell them what to do. I thought you were going to say, and the name for that is Adam's 13-year-old daughter. But anyway, (laughs) uh, I'll go back to microphone number one for the moment. What would you like to ask? I loved your answer to question one. And if you could go into a bit more detail about your and your wife's involvement in transitioning the Muse School to veganism and a plant-based menu, whether there was any blowback from the school community how you
0: dealt with it. It was huge and Susie can speak to this better than me but she, she was the one that introduced me to uh, plant-based nutrition for her objective was health, mine was the environment we, we pooled our are thinking on that, and we've been we've been major champions of that. Uh, she's leading the charge more than more than I am, even now, with her new book, which is called which comes out in October, called OMD One Meal a Day for the Planet, um, which is a, a kind of an advanced version of Meatless Monday, which is something that is easy mm-hmm. to get into for people, and once you learn how to do it, then you can expand to two meals a day, three meals a day, whatever. Um, but you know, she she also founded the school eleven years ago in California called the Muse School, and it's a progressive school, um, uh, passion-based learning, and um, it's also got a strong green kind of environmental uh, motif to the school. And, the, and so, if the kids, for example, were doing their their own uh, gardening, creating their own produce, and so on. Uh, so there's a seed-to-table kind of mentality, mm. and you know, I I kind of. We started talking about it, and is how do you do an environmental school? One of the biggest environmental problems is animal agriculture, and feed the kids hamburgers and pizza at lunch. It it just seemed uh, so wrong to us. So she took the school uh, plant based or or vegan. It was the first uh, school in America in America that we know of anyway, elementary and high school that eats 100 percent plant based just at lunch. That's where the one meal a day kind of came from. The pushback from the parent community was huge at first. It was kind of a mutiny. A lot of people, they loved the school, but they didn't want to be told how their kids were going to eat. It's one of the amendments to the U.S. Constitution, isn't it? The right to eat meat? the right right to eat meat. You can can, can carry a gun, you can shoot it yourself, and you can eat it. That's (laughs) the American way, right? (laughs) And if you argue with me about it or challenge my belief system that's what the gun is for exactly. again you see how useful that is um, so yeah there was a lot of pushback but then what we found was that even though families left the school unfortunately for those children many others came and were now oversubscribed uh, that people would even move uh, across the country wow. 3,000 miles to be part of that Fantastic. kind of social experiment
1: great up the top there microphone number four what would you like to ask in your career, what was the most enjoyable thing that you did?
0: In the most enjoyable thing career. you've done in your whole career? Oh, wow. I mean, I've, I've been blessed to get to do a lot of things that were would have been fantasies to me when I was in high school, let's say, from getting to make a movie, getting to dive and explore the, the Titanic, getting to go to the Challenger Deep... Um, most enjoyable thing in my life, you said career, but I'm going to say life, is being a father, uh, seeing my kids born. That's pretty amazing. Mm.
1: Uh. Microphone two, what would you like to ask? Hi James, welcome back to Sydney. Um, yeah, so thanks. a couple of years back you had an interview with um, James, um, Adam's sidekick, Carl. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, at the end of that you said that you donated the Deep Sea Challenger. Um, and I'm just wondering um, if you know where it is now and what it's doing and you said you opened sure, the patents sure. and yeah. if those patents have been exploited for new things
0: the, the technology, the, the sub itself and all of its attendant technology was gifted to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution so that they could incorporate it into their repertoire of techniques because they were the, the leading center for deep ocean robotics and exploration in the, in the US uh, the the sub was meant to come to Sydney uh, two years ago. The truck that it was being transported—it was going to go to the to the uh, Maritime Museum, uh, which is where the exhibit is—that's around the, the you know my expeditions. The sub, uh, the truck that was carrying it, caught fire, and it burned part of the sub's outer fairing and part of its structural beam. Didn't hit any of the main the sphere, any of the main stuff. Before they got it put out. So the sub, uh, there's a lot of wrangling with the insurance companies, and now the sub is in San Francisco, where they're just completing all the repairs on it and getting it uh, spiffed up and back in full condition. And it will then come to Sydney at some point, I believe, uh, hopefully this year, uh, so that it can be displayed here. And then ultimately it may go back into service. I've got to get these pesky little avatar sequels out of, out of my way so yeah, yeah. I can focus on on you know, the deep ocean again. Just quickly on those
1: pesky little avatar sequels but also you, you spend a fair bit of time in New Zealand Yeah. so do you and Peter Jackson just ever hang out and yeah. talk about what it's like to make
0: multi-million dollar films? Actually that's usually what we don't talk about yeah. interestingly enough. No he's actually become quite passionate about retooling the uh, New Zealand uh, agricultural economy toward plant-based proteins. And he and I have some joint projects around that that we're, th- that were funding in terms of, of uh, plant-based protein research and uh, the downstream businesses from that, that can actually convert those proteins into things like burgers and sausages and things like that 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 are perfect analogs of what you would... Uh, so you can't tell the difference, because mm. I think that's one of the ways to really get it into the, to, mm. to more, uh, more of the mainstream. Microphone number one? Not the answer that people would expect, oh, I'm sure. That's yeah, good. I and we talk about movies.
1: A um, little bit. So speaking of movies, uh, you have helmed Movies that have taken millions and millions of dollars to make and now we have people... I making... wish it was
0: only millions and
1: millions. <laughs> <laughs> but now we have people making movies on iPhones that are winning awards. Yeah. So movie making has become accessible and it's become democratised. Yeah, yeah. So my, my question is, looking at the sort of engineering that you're involved in and the exploration, what needs to happen now for that kind of exploration to become accessible and democratised the way filmmaking has now become?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, it's funny you should mention that. But but with me here tonight is uh, Maria Wilhelm, who's kind of my my right hand in a lot of the 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 new business stuff that we do. And one of the things that she has championed is a is a small company called Open ROV. And uh, as an explorer and residence at National Geographic, we got National Geographic involved with Open ROV. And uh, as a result, I think over a thousand of their small uh, ROVs were ordered and, and will be distributed to classrooms, high schools, things like that. So the average person can get an ROV in their hands, throw it in the water, go down and explore. It's got a 300-foot tether, so you could take it into a lake or into the ocean. You could look around uh, in your own local environment, and if you discover something of interest, you know there's there's a there's a, whole, there's a whole social media component that goes to that and is linked into the to the science community. So the idea is that we we want to have the citizen explorer. Uh, who gets these relatively low cost tools in their hands and can go out and actually do something? As, as a
1: high school geography teacher, I know what I'm taking to the next budget meeting. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Okay. Well, thanks for your question. All right, good. Good question. Uh, uh, I'm loving the brevity of the question, I'm loving the tone, I'm realistically just to break some hearts now, if you're in the back four of that line, back three of that line, back two or three of that line, I'm not realistically going to get to you, feel free to keep standing there, good core workout. Microphone number three, what would you like to ask, mate? Uh, hi, James, uh, I'm from Malaysia, I flew all the way here for this event and for your museum. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. I have a... My question is uh, regarding the Terminator. Uh, you've previously given some very immersive uh, audio commentaries for your films, but I always felt that uh, yeah, uh, you should have given an audio commentary for the Terminator because. You want me to do that now? <laughs> uh, oh, for, for the maybe for the eventual 4K release uh, because yeah. uh, the information you you always freely give is very very. Uh, informative
0: are you a film are you a filmmaker or are you or fil- right? uh,
1: independent filmmaker yeah yeah okay. I'm not in Hollywood yet
0: sorry. all right fair enough I'll do it how's that sound <laughs> um, amazing good <laughs> <Deal. laughs> <laughs> right. I gotta Thanks. do it before I forget it
1: yeah thank you and may I say also, he sounded a little bit like the Terminator, didn't he? had a great little resonant voice. There, Fantastic. Microphone number one, what would you like to ask? Hi there. Uh, James, with Avatar, you brought 3D massively into everywhere. Everyone wanted a 3D TV, 3D gaming, all of that. Yeah. Over the last few years, because of posts, work, and not real 3D TV and film cameras being used, yeah. where do you think 3D is now, and are you happy with where it's landed
0: It can always be better. He's he's asking where 3D is now, you know, and and speaking as one who is at the kind of bleeding edge of 3D back, you know, uh, in in 2004, 2005. Um, What I always hoped would happen is that 3D became commonplace and therefore not remarkable in the same way that color is commonplace and not remarkable, you know. Uh, I think we've accomplished that. you know, there, at the time that Avatar was released, there were about three or four thousand theaters worldwide that were th- uh, digital 3D-enabled projection systems. We now have on the order of 65 or 70 thousand 3D-enabled screens. Um, so it's become ubiquitous. It's become commonplace, and therefore not remarkable. Which is why a lot of people attribute the decline of 3D or the failure of 3D. I think going from 3,000 to, to, to 70,000 theaters is, is far from failure, mm. um, and that's good news because I want Avatar to play in all 70,000 of them, uh, Avatar, <laughs> Avatar too. Now, that said, I think the, that Hollywood has done 3D a disservice by em, embracing post-conversion, which to me is the wrong track. We should do native photography because if we're ever going to incorporate 3D into broad content production, which most of which is live or near real time or or short tra- short turnaround TV production and so on, we have to use the native production tools. Native production technology has basically stalled as of about three or four years ago. I was I was at the cutting edge of that, and, and basically the company is is uh, the the U.S. company is more or less defunct. The, the China company is still. Uh, functioning and continuing the, the development. But we need to re-embrace native, native production. I think if I could, my hopeful prediction is that we'll get 4K out of our system from a broadcast perspective, and then when that becomes utterly commonplace and 100% saturated and adopted, everybody will look around for the next big thing. And the next big thing will be staring them in the face when they look in the mirror, which is you got two eyes. We perceive the world stereoscopically. We will want our content stereoscopically. What we don't want is to have to wear glasses and have some kind of specialized viewing apparatus. We just want the screens to be all 3D and it be good 3D. So we're on the, we're, we're on the cusp of that being possible to happen. The question is, will it happen? Uh, from my own pers- perspective, since I'm not doing television production, I'm doing Avatar sequels, four of them. They will be to the best of my ability, the best 3D that's possible to make, and that includes uh, supporting people like Dolby Cinema, who have de- developed a high dynamic range projection that can put 16-foot lamberts of light on a 3D screen through the glasses, which is revolutionary. Normally, you're looking at about three-foot lamberts. Sixteen is what you should be seeing. That's what movies should look like. So we need to see the rollout of these laser projection systems so that we can fully appreciate 3D through glasses in cinemas. And then we need the rollout of uh, auto stereoscopic screens, large panel displays where you don't need glasses at all and you have multiple discrete viewing angles and all that sort of thing. Anybody that's geeking out on 3D knows what I'm talking about. It's all possible. It's It's just a question of will it happen or not. But I can guarantee you one thing, Avatar 2, 3, 4 and 5 are all going to be in 3D and they will look sumptuous.
1: <laughs> I, loved, uh, I loved the way that for a while there the questions were either science or movies, science or movies. The moment someone asked about the science of movie making, you just lost your shit then didn't you? That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! A couple more questions. Not microphone 6 for the first time. What would you like to ask from Microphone 6.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so thank you, Adam, for acknowledging us close to heaven up here. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, James, I just want to ask you one of my favourite disaster films is The Core, which is about the Earth's core slowing down and you know, a vehicle having to go down through the magma, etc. I'm just wondering, as a challenge to you, and whether you know, is anybody thinking about, obviously, remote vehicles, it's made man- man- vehicles to be difficult, but is it a possibility and is anybody working on it and have you thought about it? I think you'd have to convert yourself into a a neutrino swarm if you want to go explore the core. Mm. I don't think it's physically possible given any kind of material science that we currently understand, which isn't to say it's not possible. We just have no idea how to do it.
1: Mm. Question microphone four. What would you like to ask? Hey, um, thanks, James, for producing um, your documentary series Years of Living Dangerously. Um, I thought they were great, and my question Thank is: you. Will there be a season three? And are you currently, or maybe looking to do, uh, work on the climate cause at the movies?
0: Yeah, it shouldn't come as any surprise that it's very, very difficult to get a mainstream television show on climate change funded, especially in the United States, especially <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a certain result about 18 months ago, and you went, "Might just put that onto the back burner for a while"? <laughs> no, we're we're trying, and uh, the the interesting thing of what's evolved out of years of loving dangerously is that the group has stayed together, and has an enormous. Online footprint and there's an enormous amount of activity and a lot of of the, uh, the the material that was gathered for the first two seasons is available in in smaller kind of shareable videos and that sort of thing. So the outreach is still happening and we're putting together a, a third season of funding and we've we've got you know, all the all the stories are teed up. It's just it's difficult to do. It's well appreciated when it's done, you know. Uh, uh but it's it's difficult to get funded because it's hard to get people to show up for for bad news. So the trick is how do you make how do you make a climate story, a show about climate interesting and good television? Uh, you, ha- you have to make it human stories. You have to show how it's really affecting people right now today and what we're do- what we can do about it. There has to be an optimistic thread to it and that's our that's our challenge with that show, but it's yeah, it's definitely coming back. Microphone's free. Hi, James. To follow up on your comment about your most enjoyable experience in
1: life has been your children. What kind of wisdom have you shared with them about
0: career and life that you could share with us? Oh, well, um, I've got an an 11-year-old, a a 14-year-old, and a 17-year-old, and they don't really listen to me that much uh, (laughs) about things having to do with career and life. Uh, it's that age um, our older children are 25 and 27 our 27 year old has taken a lot of what Susie and I are, are doing to heart and um, he studied uh, sustainable agriculture and he currently works um, on our farm in New Zealand um, uh, working specifically with our food forest which is one of the largest uh, food forests in the, in the world actually I know that sounds huge but it's sort of 50-ish acres I think I can't remember 20, 25 hectares um, which is a huge food forest, but it's, it's potentially, uh, at its, when, it, when it fully matures, capable of feeding something like 2,000 people. Uh, so this is a, an, a, an experiment in sustainable agronomy that, that uh, he's uh, jointly managing with another, another guy there. So, uh, yeah, he's taken what we believe and what we think is important to, to heart. Absolutely. Great. Stay- but the younglings, it's, the jury's out. <laughs> yeah.
1: stage, Thank you. Stage two of my program to break the hearts of people with the microphone. I'm taking three more questions from there, there, and then back to there, and that's it. I'm really sorry. Microphone number one, what would you like to ask? Um, you spoke
0: a lot tonight about curiosity what do you think are some of the major skills that you have that you've been able to transfer across all your projects which have made you so successful? Hmm. That's a really good question because what's transferable, right? What, what do you have in common between an ocean expedition and a, and a say, a movie hmm. or a documentary film? It's you, what I, what I say is, is common across that, is, that it is it's a small team mentality. So how do you, how do you move fast with a small team? How do you manage a small team of creative people? And by creative, they can be, they can be artists and desi- designers on a movie, which is also a very technical medium. They can be engineers on a new vehicle project or on an expedition where you're taking new technology into the, into the ocean. And so it's the psychology of managing a small team and getting the best performance from them and maintaining morale and all that. And I have to say, I may have been a, a good artist and filmmaker relatively early on, but I was terrible at that. That's a learned skill, at least it was for me. Ron Howard may have been born with that. I certainly wasn't. I had to learn it, right? And I think the expeditions helped a lot with that, because when you're at sea with a small group of people, you become a clan, a tribe, a family. You're far from shore. You're isolated. Um, You can't just switch people out. Not that that was ever my way of doing business, but I, I started to b- become aware of the fact that if, if you were there on that expedition that we might have planned for a year or two years, you're there because you're the best. And I need to treat people like they're the best. And everybody's going to have a bad day. How do you maintain morale? How do you, how do you get people to cooperate? How do you get people with different skill sets and ways of, of interacting with each other to work together optimally? So I think that's the skill set that applies to almost everything that, I, that I've done. And that's an ongoing learning curve.
1: Great question. Great answer. Question microphone number two, what would you like to ask? Thank you. Just following up on the idea of the science of creating depth and an immersive experience in yeah. cinema, I know in the, in the really early days of, of red cinema, you really pioneered that, that workflow with Jim Janet, who founded the company. Do you have a, a view on the 4V uh, look around technology that's uh, emergent? And do you have any plans to embrace that in terms of how you might shoot movies in the future?
0: Yeah, are you talking about uh, uh, multiple multiple lens tiled together, kind of spherical data sets? Yeah, I started working with that, believe it or not, in 2000. There was a very early version of that type of technology then, and I desperately wanted to take it on some of our expeditions with us. So I thought, what better way to literally immerse an audience? than to put something like that, sticking out on a selfie stick from a submersible, and while I'm looking at some new creature or some hydrothermal vent or some new geology, they're seeing it. And not only that, but having an interactive experience where they can pan the camera. So just in, your, in your, your, uh, you know, on your computer, on your iP- iPad or whatever, you're able to move the camera around. maybe look back and see the submersible, maybe see us geeking out at the window, maybe look out and see what we're seeing at the same time. That's a goal of mine. That's something that I intend to incorporate in, in future expeditions, and what that involves is you've got to have a high-speed a high data link through water, which is called fiber optic. So we've, I've spent a lot of time and energy developing fiber optic deployment systems so that you can get the signals to the surface, get it up to a satellite, get it out to to shore and to, to uh, you know out over the internet. So my goal will be to take those you know 360 kind of immersive. I think of it as as 30 spherical data sets a second that you can interact with any way you want to, blow up, zoom in, pan around, all that sort of thing. I think that's really a, a way of the, the, the future for having people, whether it's researchers, whether it's students, or whether it's just people who are curious and interested, follow along with explorers in real time. I think that's a critical technology, yeah.
1: As I take our last audience question. I want to say to everyone else who's remained at the microphones, thinking if we just stare at him with puppy dog eyes, he'll eventually, you only get to MC events like this if you have a heart of stone. Yeah. So I say I'm sorry to all Ruthless. of you. Especially those of you who are at very front thinking, we're so close, we're so close. Our last question will come from microphone one. No pressure to you, sir, but fire away with our no last pressure. question well, for the I'm evening. I'm Adam, so I appreciate that, There you Adam. go. Thank you very much. Looking after um, a brother. Hi, Jim. Nice to meet you. Yeah, hi. Um, while us uh, home theatre enthusiasts continue to wait patiently for the abyss and true lives... <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> Um, I'm big on inspirational quotes, and um, you have one of my favorites, which is, um, "In whatever you're doing in life, uh, fear is an option." Um, yeah.
0: But no, fear is uh, not an option. Fear is an, an option. Failure is not.
1: An, uh, but but uh, failure is an option. But fear an option.
0: is not. Yeah. See, the, the, the um, NASA, the NASA thing was, "Failure is not an option." From Apollo 13, and, you know, Ed Harris's yeah. line. I think failure has to be an option because if you're if you're entering into something new and you're saying failure's not an option, you're not not taking a big enough risk. You're not going out there on the bleeding edge. You have to be prepared to fail. Uh, But you'll learn from that failure, and then you won't fail again. Now, having said that, I also believe, don't fail. Just don't fucking fail. (laughs) Do everything you can to not fail. (coughs) Right? Yeah. But yeah, the well, now you've taken me to a technical
1: spot here because technically halfway through his question I you did I cut you did start off. To, I'll I give you another off. 10 seconds to All wrap it up right. because we're very close to time here.
0: As uh, for for people that might be sort of like uh,
1: flailing a little bit in the fear, they, they find it very difficult to get yeah. out of there. Yeah, Uh, you know, the opposite from your good self, for example. Um what's the best advice that you can give?
0: Well, you just have to, to not not be afraid. I mean, just just go do it you know what's the worst thing that can happen you fall on your ass and look like an idiot you know or you'll accomplish something and you'll get and and people will see it and they'll be inspired by it and then then they'll do your own do their own you know I mean that's called innovation if you're if you're if you're too afraid to fail to actually do anything then you're not going to innovate And we all celebrate innovation. It's kind of the the highest and best expression of us as human beings and using our consciousness. Great.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Round of applause for all our audience questions. I've got three quick questions for you.
0: Okay. Is this multiple choice or essay? Yeah. No, you can take as long as you want. But
1: don't forget your tickets tonight get you into that Maritime Museum exhibition Challenging the Deep. Why... Are you putting on
0: challenging the deep? What's your aim there? Well, I think it's it's the same aim that I would have with the documentary films, which is to inspire people, uh, especially, especially young people, to actually go out and do something, and, and to actually go out and explore. We tend to think... As a society that exploration is done.
1: We think back in the 1400s,
0: everyone was going, what's over the edge there? Get me a boat, let's go and find." Has, yeah. has
1: exploration died as a human driver?
0: No, not Well, look, the goals for exploration haven't died. I mean, there, there's, there's the, if you added up just the Hadal trenches on Earth, all 12 of them, the surface area would be greater than North America about 1.2 Australias so imagine that there's an entire continent on the earth that has' is yet undiscovered and unexplored uh, so that's something to, to think about and of course there are all the other avenues for exploration and as someone pointed out uh, you know exploration can and and is being democratized so that that anybody can participate uh, so it's just a question of having curiosity and acting upon it and that's so the I think the museum museum exhibit shows that a a kid from a suburb in Canada 450 miles from the nearest ocean and 3,000 miles from Hollywood can just go and act on his dreams and do crazy stuff so hopefully that'll be an inspiration to the next generation of filmmakers and maybe the the next generation of explorers and the inspiration for you was Jacques Cousteau tell us for as
1: long or as little as you like about Ocean X I've heard it described as Jacques Cousteau 2.0
0: Yeah, which is a dream that I've had for about 20 years now, which is to take the ship-based, small crew, interesting personality version of exploration take it back onto the high seas with, with cutting-edge technology, going deeper, going farther, and with a strong conservation element, a strong environmental consciousness. Well, that turns out to also be the, the dream of, of the Dalios, Ray, Ray Dalio and his son, who bought a big ship and are completely retrofitting it as the, as the ultimate exploration platform. And the BBC, which did you know uh, Blue Planet One and Two, are coming in as mm-hmm. as uh, produce, producing studio on this. So Ocean X should be the great ocean exploration adventure series upcoming
1: that will inspire the next generation Hopefully. of. Hopefully, so let's close with Jacques Cousteau said, "If you knew what was there, we wouldn't have to go." Yeah. And you've spent it seems to me most of your life being driven by desire have to go, yep. where do you have to go to next?
0: <laughs> well, I'd love to walk on Mars someday, but I don't think that's really in the, in the cards. Um, there are a lot of deep ocean targets that are really interesting. We dropped a robot into the Sirena Deep, which is adjacent to, only about 70 miles away from where I dove in the Challenger Deep, and came up with one of the most stunning uh, uh, scientific results of the of the expedition, the single, single one, uh, which was bacterial mats at a subduction zone which had never been seen, which means that we may have gotten a glimpse into Genesis on Earth, the origin of life. This is now a plausible way that life could have emerged on Earth. We had hypothesized it. We went out and we found it. So that was very exciting. So I would go look there and I would look at similar places. Um, but I've also gotten to this point where I think... Those deep ocean ecosystems are gonna not be that impacted by, by human beings, notwithstanding the occasional beer can that winds up down there. Our fragile upper ecosystem in the ocean is at great risk. So I'm putting a lot of, most I would say, most of my energy and capacity into the sustainability of our oceans. And you know, when I came up from the deep dive, my friend Paul Allen was there, because he's a fellow deep ocean explorer. And, you know, exhausted from the dive, he invited me over to his boat and we had dinner. And, he, and at dinner he said, what can we do to save the ocean? The answer I would give today is not the answer I gave him then. I said, I said let's get more ships, let's get more robots out there, let's understand, understand better, let's get our reach and so on. I now realize that the way to save the oceans is everybody everywhere, no matter how far you are from the ocean, we have to change the way we live and consume and eat because what's killing the oceans is us eating the fish. One, we've we've literally killed 95% of the apex predators in the ocean. The ocean today does not look like the ocean looked 200 years ago. It's completely different, but with our shifting baseline, we think it's normal. And everything that we do travels downstream into the ocean. Every bit of plastic pollution, every bit of nutrient runoff, the way we run our agricultural systems, which are in turn a response to how we eat and how we consume, these all have to be looked at. We save the ocean on land, not in the ocean. Let me
1: say in, in closing... you you clearly are a person all your life has had to go but more importantly you've taken us with you your ability to tell those stories on the big screen or in the nature documentary has transported hundreds of millions of people around the world and for that reason you're a unique individual and it has been an absolute thrill to have as our guest this evening James Cameron ladies and gentlemen thank you This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.